Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 51 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm excited to welcome Villanova University astrophysicist Edward Sion, an expert on white dwarf stars, who received his PhD in astrophysics from the University of Pennsylvania in 1975. In fact, the American Astronomical Society recently invited Sion to write the book Accreting White Dwarfs, due to be published by the Institute of Physics in the UK. But today, we'll primarily be discussing what decades of studying white dwarfs can tell us about the future of our own star. Sion joins us from Wayne, Pennsylvania. Ed, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. First off, uh, would you please explain what types of stars will eventually experience a red giant phase and end up with a white dwarf as their remnant cores? Yes, uh, this will involve uh, the vast, vast majority of stars, uh, stars that have masses larger than uh, eight to nine solar masses uh, become uh, black holes or neutron stars. They undergo supernovae and uh, stars that are, are that are all eight or nine solar masses or less. Those will ultimately end up as white dwarfs. 97 to 98 percent of the stars of the roughly 200 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy will end up, will terminate their lives as white dwarf stars. Tell us why the term hydrogen burning is really a misnomer. Yes, uh, it's, it's, fu it's thermonuclear fusion, uh, combustion, ordinary burning of material like a fire. We're not talking about that. We're talking about thermonuclear fusion, where two protons have to overcome their mutual Coulomb repulsion. There's a Coulomb barrier due to their like charges. And so they have to be moving very, very fast in order to overcome this uh, mutual repulsion and fuse together to form initially a compound helium nucleus that is unstable, helium-2. Uh, it immediately decays uh, into a heavy hydrogen nucleus, uh, we call it a deuteron or deuterium, uh, plus a positively charged electron, the antiparticle of the electron, uh, plus a neutrino. And then the next step is the, the uh, a proton collides with a de de deuteron that's just formed and produces helium-3 plus a gamma ray. And it's that gamma radiation produced in that second step that gives us sunlight. But it takes a long time for the, the initial photon, if you could tag it, to diffuse out the surface of the sun as, as sunlight. And then finally, the, uh, the two um, helium-3 nuclei, two light helium atoms, overcome their mutual repulsion, and they fuse together, forming ordinary helium uh, plus two protons. That's, it's called the proton-proton cycle because you start it with two protons and you end with two protons. It's a lot Created more helium. complicated than you would think. And it's, it's an unbelievable uh, amount of energy being released. Uh, I think at every second, something like 11, I don't know, 11, 11 million tons of, <laughs> of hydrogen is converted to helium. For every gram of hydrogen converted to helium through thermonuclear fusion, 0 0.007 grams turns into pure energy. The, the sun is losing energy every second by shining, but you have to provide that same amount of energy from thermonuclear energy production in the core to balance it, to have the sun in, in, uh, in thermal balance or thermal equilibrium. And so that cannot go on forever 
but the sun has a has a thermonuclear lifetime with a main sequence of 10 billion years. So we know our solar system is 4.6 billion years old. That means the sun theoretically has another 5.4 billion years of burning hydrogen to helium. But by then it will start expanding and becoming hotter and a bit more luminous. And uh, then it will eventually leave the main sequence and evolve into what we call a red giant star. <laughs> so as I wrote in Forbes, there are already some 14,000 known white dwarfs in our Milky Way galaxy. And our sun will likely end its life as a 0.6 solar mass white dwarf. And That's right. Having lost some 40% of its current mass during its end days, as an expanding red giant, are those numbers correct? Uh, yes, yes. I we you know that's that really, and in fact, that's the average mass of a white dwarf is about 0.6 solar mass, or something like 0.58. The latest numbers it keeps changing, but but it's uh, about around 0.6 is a, is a good number to use. That's the average white dwarf mass of isolated white dwarfs, not white dwarfs in close compact binaries like cataclysmic variables where the mass, the average mass of a white dwarf in a cataclysmic, or we call them CVs, uh, amount to about 0.83 solar masses. That's based on work uh, done by a, a group in, in, in Germany and, and the UK. Okay, prior to the Gaia, the European uh, parallax satellite Gaia, which is now in its uh, almost the third uh, data release. Uh, it's, it's the early data release is already, early data release three is already available. But in any case, prior to Gaia, there were about 30,000 white dwarfs known, maybe a few thousand more than that. And these were all known primarily from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, SDSS. Since Gaia, since Gaia, there are now 486,641 white dwarf candidates that have been detected. And 260,000 of these are high confidence candidates. They haven't had follow-up spectroscopy yet, obviously, but the, the number is hundreds of thousands of white dwarfs since Gaia was launched. Good gosh. Hundreds of thousands of white dwarf candidates. It's, it's just overwhelming. So in other words, uh, we, it, we've, we've essentially gone from an estimated 14,000 known white dwarfs to hundreds of thousands of white that's dwarfs. Right. For, for, that, that's right. 14,000 was roughly the number that we had in the Villanova catalog of spectroscopically identified white dwarfs. That has now been supplanted. We're, we're now part of the uh, Montreal White Dwarf Database, and uh, we're, we're, we're keeping it going. But the problem is it's an overwhelming number of, of white dwarfs that are going to accumulate uh, to be cataloged. And it, 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 it becomes just uh, stupendous, I mean, to keep track of everything. But imagine, imagine searching for exoplanets around, around hundreds of thousands of white dwarfs. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. So in other words, imagine searching for extrasolar Earths or, ex, or extrasolar planets circling... A white dwarf. I mean, That's right. And these are very faint remnant cores of, of, their, of the star's former self. So let's Correct. focus back on the sun a bit. We, we know that, sure. that our sun is a so-called yellow dwarf star, a G2 yes. spectral type. Explain right. what, what we mean by G2 spectral type. Uh, the spectral classes of, of normal stars, not white dwarfs, uh, and not subdwarfs, but normal stars. The spectral classes are uh, the hottest uh, are classified as O stars. Uh, the next, the next uh, uh, hottest are B stars. 
uh, A stars and so on down the line to uh, O B A F G K M, where where the sun is uh, G two, and it has a Roman numeral five after it, indicating its luminosity class. It's a main sequence dwarf. That's what Roman numeral five uh, indicates. So it's the it, it's the spectral sequence of stars. Uh, whether whether they're, as long as they're normal stars, whether they're giants, supergiants, subgiants, uh, main sequence dwarfs. Uh, they're 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 um, given the Morgan Kinan Kelman classification, which was developed uh, by Philip Kinan at Ohio State and um, W. W. Morgan, I believe, at the University of Chicago, and and Kelman also, I believe, at Chicago. So that MKK system is still used today, but it doesn't apply to white dwarfs uh, or to sub dwarfs. Now, did or you to brown, uh, or to brown dwarfs? Now, when you were a student of uh, first uh, of astronomy. Did you learn the yes. mnemonic device "Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me"? <laughs> to, to keep uh, yes, <laughs> yes, I did. But now that that is regarded as being politically in. <laughs> oh yeah, in- I'm sure. I'm sure it is. That was a good you, one. You, I thought. Anyway, you, you might. Yeah, no, you have to be careful. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Okay. There are other variations of it too that we won't go into. Uh oh. <laughs> uh oh. Okay. So we we actually live though. We are a, a, a G two type star. Surround. We are living in a sea of red dwarf stars of, of these M class stars, which is the faint red That's dwarfs. Right. Okay, and uh, in fact, most of the stars in the cosmos are red dwarfs. Yet, that's right. The most populous. Yep. Both these yellow dwarfs and red dwarf stars will evolve to burn through their hydrogen and see I, I i've resorted to burning through hydrogen myself uh, and eventually collapse into white dwarfs correct just say nuclear burning the, yeah there'll yeah, be nuclear no, burning yeah, no okay. the uh the uh yeah, the, the red dwarfs the red dwarfs they're all you know much less massive than the sun and so there just has not been sufficient time for a red dwarf, you know, to, to have uh, gone through its hydrogen, they, they burn, they, they undergo nuclear fusion much more slowly. It's, it's, it's a temperature-sensitive reaction. And so the lower the temperature of the white dwarf, I mean, the less massive the, I mean, sorry, the less massive the red dwarf, uh, the lower its core temperature and the more slowly the consumption of its hydrogen fuel t- goes on. So, for example, a half a solar mass red dwarf has a nuclear t- lifetime on the main sequence of a trillion years, 10 to the 12 years. Yeah, it'll burn hydrogen for an eternity, basically. <laughs> In 1983, you led a team that provided a yes. classic classification scheme for white dwarfs. Tell us a bit about how that came about. It came about because of the, uh, the, the, the great variety of composition types of white dwarfs. Now, we know that 80% of all white dwarfs are hydrogen rich. We call them DA stars. And we know that uh, about 20% are non-hydrogen rich. They're other compositions, mostly helium rich. Uh, but other types of stars have been found, uh, white dwarfs have been found with atmospheres of carbon even. Uh, there's even a case of a, of, a, of a white dwarf whose atmosphere is dominated by oxygen. And then the cool among the cool white dwarfs, there are, there are white dwarfs that are helium rich. You don't see the helium but you know that the helium is there from spectroscopic analysis, uh, from model analysis, and yet you see metals uh, like calcium, magnesium, uh, and, and silicon. These lines form in a white dwarf atmosphere. So with all these bizarre spectra of white dwarfs, 
uh, of many different compositions, uh, we decided to develop a system of spectral classification that better characterizes not only the, the uh, chemical composition of what's present in the white dwarf atmosphere, but also what uh, its temperature is. And so the classification that we developed is, is a significant modification of the original system that was first introduced by one of the greatest spectroscopists of this century, of, of the 20th century, that is, uh, Jesse Greenstein of Caltech, and also uh, Willem Loyton at uh, the University of Minnesota, the late Willem Loyton and the late uh, Jesse Greenstein. And you actually met, and, tell, tell us a story about you actually went to Palomar Observatory and met Jesse Greenstein, I believe. I, I, I met Jesse Greenstein in Pasadena. It was, it was not at the observatory. I, 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 they, they invited me to their home. And, of course, I went to his office in uh, uh, Robinson Hall on the Caltech campus. And he very kindly uh, showed me a lot of uh, the spectra that he had obtained at the 5.1 meter at Mount Palomar. Uh, and then he and his wife graciously uh, invited me to dinner at their home in Pasadena. And so I, I had a very nice visit there. And... Uh, uh, it was just amazing, and it kind of pre predestined what was going to be discovered about about white dwarfs accreting comets or accreting something. Because Jesse Greenstein had observed a DA white dwarf named Ross six forty, and he swore up and down that he saw a calcium line in its spectrum when he observed it with the five point one meter uh, a, a, a couple years later. The calcium was gone, and uh, you know it, it led to the uh, the thought that you know something fell into Ross six forty to give it this, or was it Ross six twenty seven? In any case, one of the Ross objects that uh, something fell into it and polluted its atmosphere, and this, of course, was was you know decades before we realized that white dwarfs are accreting exoplanetary debris, so it kind of presaged what was to come with, with Jesse's sharp eye. And uh, so by 1983, using uh, Jesse Greenstein's data that was taken largely at Palomar Observatory in Southern California, uh, you, yes. you used uh, his data to come up with a classification scheme to better organize what we know about the, the white dwarfs. Exactly right. Okay. By, by organizing it, you might better understand them. And this indeed has materialized. It's just like, like classifying butterflies or uh, you know, you, or, or bees. You, you have to have a, a classification system to see the overall distribution and 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 obtain clues as to why there are differences and so forth. So that's exactly what what we did. As I wrote in Forbes, newly formed white dwarfs are extremely hot with temperatures up to one hundred thousand Kelvin. They gradually cool over time due to a lack of an internal heat source. And an average white dwarf has cooled to 6,000 Kelvin after some 2 billion years, but then takes an additional 8 billion years to reach 4,000 Kelvin, providing planets nearly twice Earth's lifetime in a continuous white dwarf habitable zone. By comparison, our own sun's uh, photosphere, or, or so-called surface, right. what, is about... 5,000 Kelvin? What is it? Uh, yeah, 4,850, 5,000 Kelvin. Okay. Between 4,800 and 5,000 Kelvin so, surface temperature. So the, the incredible thing that I'm reading from this uh, cooling is that after 8 billion years, okay, these yes. things are still almost as hot as our sun. Yes, that's right. 
I mean, what, yes. are your, what are your thoughts? I mean, is it that's incredible, isn't it? And and it's, a, it's a very slow cooling. It's a it's and they a, don't and, they, a, and yeah. they don't have a they don't have a heat source. Well, that's right. They're they're just it's it's like think of a of a of a a, a, a heated cannonball um, that is just it, it's you you shut off the the flame or the torch and then it it just cools. Okay, by 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 conduction, it cools off. Now in a white dwarf. Uh, there's a thermostat working, which is the non-degenerate, the uh, ideal gas envelope, which is about 60, 60 to 100 kilometers thick. It's the opacity. It, it's it's uh, the opacity of this non-degenerate layer that that determines how fast the white dwarf cools. Now tell us. And that, so now, now you, yes. Now, now, now break that down for us. You're talking about a sure. non-degenerate layers and opacity. Non- Define the terms a little bit. By opacity, how, how the gas in the non-degenerate layer scatters and absorbs radiation. And what is how non- transparent is it to the flow of radiation? And what is because the, that's what's going to cool the white dwarf. And we're and we talk when we're talking degenerates, we're not talking about juvenile delinquents. So what? No, what no, a, no. <laughs> what does what, what a what is what is a, in this sense? What is, in a physical sense? What is a degenerate? You know, uh, by, by degenerate gas, what what supports a white dwarf against gravitational collapse? is the pressure of electron degeneracy. Uh, for example, you look at the core of a white dwarf. It contains ions. You know, they've lost all their electrons from, from, the, from the high pressure and high temperature. They've lost all their electrons. The electrons form a separate gas because the Pauli exclusion principle does not allow more than two electrons with opposite spins having uh, occupying the same energy state, the same four uh, quantum numbers. And so because of this restriction, uh, to uh, ha- to the, the available quantum states that electrons can occupy, the higher the density, the lower the energy of these uh, states. In a state of complete degeneracy, that occurs at zero temperature. All of the all of the possible uh, quantum states are full. In other words, an electron cannot de-excite by emitting a photon because it's not allowed to go to a lower energy state. It's, it's like, think of it this way, that electrons are forced to move faster and faster the higher the density, because they can't lose energy because of the Pauli exclusion principle. Yeah, and, and, and so what is a Pauli exclusion principle? Uh, that no more than two electrons, differing only in their spin, uh, can occupy the same uh, energy state. Okay. So it puts a restriction on on the energy the energy states the quantum states of of, of the electrons uh, in the core. So in simplistic this all, terms, this, also, the, this 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 matter is just simply squeezed in to physical that's right. space. That's right, and it has it's nowhere squeezed to squeezed in. Yeah, go ahead. exactly. And 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 what's 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 even more amazing is that well, first of all, the the, the more massive a white dwarf, the smaller it is. That's so bizarre because a normal star, you add mass to it, it it, it gets it gets bigger. In in the, in a white dwarf, it gets smaller the more mass it has. But that's not even the most bizarre. The most bizarre is that this electron degenerate gas depends only upon density. In other words, if you heat an electron degenerate gas, there's no expansion to cool off because it can't expand. It has no sensitivity to temperature, you see. And so that's a very explosive situation because if you have a gas layer that is electron degenerate and thermonuclear fusion switches on, guess what? The nuclear energy builds up very rapidly, raising the temperature, which makes the nuclear reactions go faster and faster and faster until you get this tremendous amount of nuclear energy stored up 
and you get an explosion. It's like a time bomb. And that's what we, we know uh, powers a classical nova, the uh, work that has been done by, by well, Leon Mestel, Sumner Starfield, and others uh, showing that uh, classical novae are the explosions of, of white dwarfs where the degenerate layer, the electron degenerate layer that, that accumulates uh, from accretion, from a close companion, triggers the, the nuclear explosion. So this is different from a type 1A supernova in which we know right. that, that a, a white dwarf accretes matter from a, an adjacent solar-type star or just a normal hydrogen-burning star to such an extent that it eventually explodes in a, in a massive explosion. A classical nova Th- is right. what? It, 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 it doesn't have any necessarily any outside accretion or am i reading am, no am I it, it, it accretes it also accretes from a donor star but the donor star it, like a, a a main sequence like dwarf is filling what we call its roche lobe so it's it, you know it's it's a limiting tidal lobe so it's it's gravitationally unstable and material flows over through the what is called the inner lagrangian point uh in, in onto an accretion disk around the white dwarf now if the white dwarf is magnetic then the uh, magnetic field of the white dwarf reaches out. Its, its effect uh, channels the material near the inner Lagrangian point onto the magnetic poles of the white dwarf. Both of these non-magnetic or magnetic white dwarfs can produce a, a classical nova. Um, but the classical nova is, as I said, a thermonuclear explosion, and it can recur. You can have many, many classical novae, and that's one of the one of the uh, most important questions now in white dwarf astrophysics is: Do white dwarfs grow in mass despite having hundreds, maybe thousands of novae? Does a nova explosion carry away more mass than accretes, or does or does a nova lose less mass in the explosion than has accreted? In other words, does a white dwarf build up in mass? If a white dwarf is born with one solar mass, roughly, it has enough time during the lifetime of a cataclysmic variable to reach the Chandrasekhar limit, which is the maximum mass for a carbon-oxygen core, such that electron degeneracy pressure can, can prevent gravitational collapse. Instantaneously, at 1.44 solar masses for a white dwarf uh, consisting of a core of carbon and oxygen, it will instantaneously collapse once that limit is reached of 1.44 solar masses. And now the big question is, do cataclysmic variables produce type 1a supernovae explosions and what is or, it and define your terms what is a cataclysmic variable we haven't talked cataclysmic cataclysm talk- variable is a compact binary that would fit inside the sun the orbital periods go from the, the very short ultra short period end of about 10 minutes up to um, a, a roughly uh, a half a day to a day so but basically and it's a white dwarf circled by a, a main sequence hydrogen burning that's star. exactly right that's and, right and, yes. and and this thing is uh the white dwarf is accreting material it's just it's basically leaching material off this uh, that's right this the, main, the main sequence, sequence star. star is is a donor we call i, I call it a donor star we and, call it a donor star and and in kind of basic terms until it just kind of reach, reaches its limit it reaches its fill and its belly fills up and it has to just explode because right. it, 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 it just bursts, basically, right? Yeah, well, because the electron degeneracy pressure that was holding up the white dwarf against collapse fails at 1.4 for solar mass, the Chandrasekhar limit, you no longer have enough electron degeneracy pressure to prevent 
total collapse. And what happens is, in a Type 1A supernova, the white dwarf collapses and it detonates and completely blows itself to smithereens. There's nothing left. No neutron star, no black hole, absolutely nothing. No remnant whatsoever. So these are the brightest type supernova in the universe, right, that we know of. Well, they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're bright. They're, but but the, the point is about them is that they're, they're standard candles. In other words, the explosion of a type 1A supernova is so common that they, they are used as light bulbs because we know how much energy is released. We know their distances. And so we can use them as, uh, as, as standards, as, as standard candles. And that's how we know that the universe is expanding faster now than it was in the past. The expansion of the universe in the past was slower and now it's accelerating it, due to this words, dark energy. Uh, that, that, that they were that, that's right, and that and that implies dark energy, right? And that implies, of course, the lambda parameter that Einstein uh, first uh, postulated, and then this kind of you know, this considered kind a of, great uh, mistake. Right, yeah, right. This uh, and 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 so the lambda parameter plus the uh, cold dark matter model of the Big Bang cosmology uh, is based a, a lot on uh, this. Uh, conclusion that the universe uh, the universe is is expanding more rapidly and this is uh, the at, lambda at is simply yeah. negative energy that is pushing the the, 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 the pushing the universe. that's right D dark energy this has yeah, nothing right. again this has nothing to do with the normal hubble expansion of the universe from the big bang and the and inflation this is simply this uh added cosmological constant this negative so-called energy that einstein first uh thought was his right. biggest blunder but now has been invoked as potentially that, that, the, the, that's that's right that, okay. it, that, that, that the universe is accelerating its its rate of expansion is is increasing but to be clear for the listener now uh, we we want to yes. make certain that the listener doesn't think that the type 1a supernova have a damn thing to do with dark energy they don't they just help us measure it that that's right they they provide evidence that there has to be dark energy uh, let, let's get back to what's going to happen to our sun when our sun will actually start expanding as a red giant and when the thing when our sun will actually collapse onto itself and form a white dwarf as it uh, uses up more and more of its hydrogen fuel we, we estimate that only about 10 percent of the, the mass of the sun will ever be deep enough for it to undergo thermonuclear fusion so if you know and and we know that 0.007 grams uh, is released as pure energy for every gram of hydrogen converted to helium. So this can only go along for so long. Then, then the, the, the nature provides the sun with an alternate source of energy temporarily, and that is that the sun will undergo uh, contraction of its core. Uh, as it leaves the main sequence, its core will be contracting. The contraction of this inner region will pull in more hydrogen, and so you'll have a thick hydrogen shell ignited, as though hydrogen is reignited, even though it was all used up on the main sequence. It, some is reignited. Think of this car, this contracting core. Now it's shrinking more and more and more, releasing gravitational potential energy as radiation, keeping the sun, the, the future sun, shining. But at the same time, gravitational energy, uh, the, you know, the sun is losing energy. Uh, the red giant sun is losing energy. Uh, but it's by shining, but it's also gaining energy from this contraction. But eventually, when this core keeps contracting, it will reach higher and higher temperatures because one half of the gravitational potential energy release goes into the radiation that keeps the sun shining, but the other half goes into internal energy 
inside the core, which makes the core hotter. When the core of the future red giant, uh, contracted core of the future red giant sun reaches about 10 to the 8 degrees Kelvin, 100 million degrees, another set of nuclear reactions switch on. And that's what is called the triple alpha process, where three helium nuclei are involved in the production of carbon. And so what, what happens is the following, that two helium nuclei, because at, at 100 million degrees, they're moving so fast that they can overcome their mutual Coulomb repulsion, assisted by what we call quantum mechanical tunneling. They can then combine two helium nuclei combined to form a beryllium-8 nucleus plus a gamma ray. That gamma ray is given off as sunlight in the red giant sun, the red giant sun. It now has thermonuclear radiation from the triple alpha reactions that switched on at 100 million degrees, and that stops the contraction, and the sun then begins its life as a a full-fledged red giant uh, star burning helium in its core. The helium uh, eventually burns out, just like hydrogen burned out on the main sequence. All, virtually all the helium fuel in the core, helium burning, uh, is consumed. Once again, the, con- the, core, the core contracts. It brings in more, hel- more helium, but this time helium is burning in a shell around a carbon-oxygen core. That carbon-oxygen core is going to be the future white dwarf. Once, once the red giant expels its uh, outer layers, it will be called a planetary nebula. So you don't. By, so, so you're not. Yeah. You're not one of the ones who think that Earth is going to survive all this. Some, some people don't know. So you you, I, you don't think so. We still don't know. No, no. There, there. It. We still don't. There's nothing definitive known about it. However, let me just say that uh, to me, intuitively, the the, the the stronger likelihood would be that Earth or Earth's orbit will, will will undergo decay. It won't be pushed out to a greater orbit like like uh, uh, happens with uh, with the outer planets. The Earth itself, I don't think, will survive this. Uh, you write in one of your book chapters about the discovery of the white dwarf companions to Sirius and Procyon. Uh, both, exactly. Both have white dwarfs. All right. So we're going back to the nineteenth, the middle of the nineteenth century, about the right. time about the time of the California Gold Rush, uh, yes. when astronomy was just coming of age. We didn't really have a good understanding of how of of thermonuclear burning at all, even at that point. Uh, That's right. We had a we had some ideas about gravity due to new, Newtonian physics. Uh, Einstein uh, was a long way off, and uh, you know we basically uh, were just uh, using uh, calculus and Newtonian physics uh, to try to figure out what was happening in the sky. Right. So the, that was the heyday. Yes. <laughs> okay. So you note that in 1844, astronomer yes. Frederick Bessel showed that both the bright main sequence stars, the hydrogen-burning stars of Sirius, which is the brightest right. star in the uh, night sky, right? Yes, sure. yes. Okay. Yes. The, and Procyon must each have invisible companion stars of roughly their mass. Uh, that was due to astrometric measurements of, in other words, how this, these stars moved across our line of sight. Uh, that's that's right. Their their orbits around uh, Sirius A and uh, and Procyon A, their orbits are what we call a, 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 
they're, they're called a pair, a visual binary orbits, except Procyon B is hidden in the glare of Procyon, uh, Procyon A. But Sirius B was observed, was first observed by Alvin Clark, the great uh, telescope maker, American telescope maker. And uh, even though it's so close to Sirius, but he saw Sirius B. Uh, and then in 19, I believe it was 1910, the first spectrum of a white dwarf was obtained by a woman, Williamina Patton Fleming, who worked with Edward C. Pickering at the Harvard College Observatory. Uh, Williamina Patton Fleming saw a star that looked, uh, a spectrum that looked very strange and showed strong hydrogen lines. In other words, it had to be hot. Right. That, that, but how could I, it, I was going to get to that, yeah. but let's go back to Bessel because Bessel was where? Sure. Where did he make his observations? Do you recall? Uh, he was a, a, a German a mathematician astronomer. Okay, uh, who made his his observations uh, and uh, measuring the posi- position and angle but, and separation? But he did of, not see uh, this, he he was he did not see quote unquote Sirius A the white dwarf that circles uh, or in the binary system Sirius and no right, no and, and, and yeah, Sirius, that's right and Sirius A, but he deduced that it must exist. If if Sirius A didn't have the white dwarf companion, its motion on the sky on the plane of the sky would be a straight line. It has a wavy motion instead of a straight line, which means there's a companion that is gravitationally influencing it. And I assume and that so, Procyon, they, he deduced the same thing. Because, yeah. Okay. Procyon, but, but see, Procyon B, it's hidden in the glare of Procyon A. We know it's about 0.6 solar masses. We know its temperature is about 73, 7,400 degrees. It's a little hotter than Procyon A. Sirius B is extremely hot. It's 25,000 922 degrees kelvin okay so it's it's hotter than a it's hotter than sirius a right and yet it you know because it's it's so hot and 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 so close by the the luminosity depends on the square of the radius and the fourth power of the temperature well if it's very hot and yet it's faint then that means it has to be very small and if it's very small it has to be incredibly dense Yes. At this point, let me emphasize: stellar physics was not known, so they had no clue, that, right? They had no clue what this that, thing that, was, right? That that that's right. They just knew that it had to be matter. It, it had to be made of something that was just so so strange, so bizarre. It didn't make sense. And it it, it would take another basically another half century before it b- began to make sense. That's that's right. Start you know starting really uh, were with uh, with with Chandrasekhar and. Uh, with the theory of uh, of degenerate matter, Sir Ralph Fowler and uh, Fermi Dirac statistics, so a lot of uh, progress had to be made in quantum physics uh, before it was fully understood what these uh, what these objects uh, really were, what their nature really really was. <laughs> so, sure. for a white dwarf to cool absolute zero to become a black dwarf, and that emits yes. no radiation whatsoever, it That's would right. normally take trillions of years and and that has not happened because uh, ex- because the universe is only 13.7 or 13.8 billion years whoever you believe right so that's uh, exactly right so in theory there will eventually be black dwarfs right given enough time yes <laughs> trillions of years so as noted in forbes habitable zones around such white dwarfs would last between three to eight billion years but you have you would have to be a hundred times closer to the white dwarf than we are to the sun in order to make a planet warm enough to have liquid water and sustain life, I note. 
And then someone right. estimated that such a planet would need to orbit the white dwarf in 30 hours or less to remain habitable. <laughs> is that even possible? It is possible because we observe binary systems, very compact binary systems, uh, ultra short period uh, binaries uh, that uh, orbit, orbit in 10 minutes. Uh, now these are brown, these are thought to be brown dwarf uh, donor stars. They're called AMCVN systems. They're helium rich cataclysmic variables. But we know that you can have stable orbits that that close to uh, to a white dwarf. The problem is that the white dwarf would be susceptible to gravitational disturbances, gravitational perturbations, and of course, if it crossed the the Roche limit of the white dwarf, uh, it would be uh, 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 tidally, tidally disrupted. And what do you mean by again, or, or a merger a, would take place? And, and give us again the a, a parenthetical definition of a Roche limit. Uh, the Roche limit is an imaginary boundary around a star or a planet, inside of which uh, a, 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 an intruding body uh, would be would be disintegrated or di- disrupted, especially if it's rocky or icy. Okay. It would be uh, uh, b- b- broken up, or it would just, or it would just go into a, a collision uh, trajectory uh, with the with the white dwarf. But isn't this a moot point? Because, I mean, as you said, we have a a pretty ideal situation here with our solar system uh, in Absolutely. the habitable zone. Everything is just so. We, the planets in the solar system have largely circular orbits. Things are just so. They're great. Okay, beautiful planet. That's why we need to take care of it. I mean, that, that's right. I think that is probably the takeaway. We're going to talk about that a bit later. But sure. uh, isn't it crazy uh, to think that just what you said, if this red giant is expanding and, and we're undergoing all these thermal pulses from this craziness that's going on, <laughs> yes. it, you know, <laughs> in, at, the, at the interior, what used to be our normal hydrogen burning star we're either going to be in a decaying orbit that is pushing us closer into the into the star or push far out and you know, freeze far, yeah. far out and freeze <laughs> how in the devil could a planet that used to be an earth-like planet have a 30 hour orbit that avoided the roche limit <laughs> for any for any yes. length of time and so, and so that life could survive. I mean, that just seems yeah, like craziness. It, craziness, right? Yeah, it would. It, it would have to be. Uh, it would have to be outside the Roche limit to have the greatest chance of, uh, of right, surviving. But, I mean, but what I'm saying and is, you how, can calculate how, what the Roche limit is for the but, white dwarf. But, but, but my ahead. point. My point. My point is, you know, how are you going to go through all this red giant expansion and end up with an Earth-like planet outside the Roche limit, but yet in a 30-hour orbit around a white dwarf? You would have to have orbital migration. You would have to have uh, gravitational interactions between the system of planets, whatever the architecture of that system of planets is. The gravitational interactions could cause some planets to move inward, some to move outward. And so there'd be a a shuffling, a a, a redistribution of of planetary orbits. That's the way you could get you could get a a planet to migrate inward toward the toward the white dwarf uh, central star. Would be to to have uh, orbit orbital migration. That's how that's how we believe hot Jupiters come about. But that because we been, know that these right. But I mean that's essentially though winning the lottery. I mean that's essentially yeah. saying, hey hey guys, we're going to live red through giant. this red giant phase, and, and that's you right. know pretty soon we're going to be in a thirty hour orbit around the, that white dwarf. You know, so don't worry, everything's cool. 
it's a lottery. <laughs> <laughs> and do you actually think that such planets, habitable planets, exist around uh, white dwarfs like that? That would be yes. Uh, Thirty. Uh, uh, less than a handful have been discovered to have planets around them. Now, know, whether I, those planets, whether those planets uh, formed after the white dwarf form, which is also possible, or whether they somehow migrated inward. Uh, uh, after the white dwarf was formed, they, they they migrated inward. We're not sure, but it's not it it's it, it's something that is very possible. In fact, the origin of the high field magnetic white dwarfs is now there's one one uh, promising model where the high field magnetic white dwarfs formed from a Jovian, a Jupiter-like planet that that was accreted by the white dwarf. In other words, a, a, a magnetic uh, a Jupiter-like planet accreted onto a white dwarf, giving the white dwarf its strong field, the merger, uh, the accretion merger, giving the white dwarf its strong magnetic field. That's, that's a viable uh, possibility. So none of these things are unthinkable. They're, they're very possible. It's, it's, a, it's a weird universe. <laughs> so as I noted in Forbes, in our son's future red giant scenario, you told me that Jupiter may accrete enough mass to turn into a deuterium or even hydrogen burning star. So that has to be modeled, but yes, that's possible. So, uh, okay. So you told me that pick no nuclear reactions that don't depend on temperature, but rather density can generate right. heat, ignite deuterium burning in Jupiter, which leads to a hydrogen burning star. So these are, as you say, are, yes, are reactions, nuclear reactions that do not depend on temperature. They could, they could, uh, it take place at very low temperatures. So it's possible, right. you say, that the planet Jupiter and our future red giant sun may form a binary star system. Like that, I say, it, it, dep- it depends on simulations, how, how realistic the simulations are. So that is a white dwarf in binary motion with Jupiter as its very new stellar companion. That's, it could be, yes, yes. <laughs> so in other words, our Jupiter could turn into a hydrogen-burning star or at least a deuterium-burning star, if this happened. And b- for a brief amount of time, uh, That's right. our system, our solar system and, and Jupiter may look like something from uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2010, A Space Odyssey. I don't know if you remember that. that uh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> where yeah, where, where Jupiter did turn into a star. Yeah, you can't rule it out. And, I mean, Jupiter now has, has uh, one thousandth the mass of the sun, all it would need to accrete would be uh, roughly ten times more of its mass uh, to uh, undergo uh, heating from uh, from deuterium burning. Deuterium burning can switch on at temperatures as low as eight hundred thousand to nine hundred thousand Kelvin, and so if it can be heated to that temperature by pictonuclear reactions, then it could conceivably. Uh, uh, become a hydrogen burning uh, a hydrogen burning star nuclear burning star okay but again this is highly speculative and but but all all bets are off you can't rule out these things so what are the two or three most uh important things we've learned about white dwarfs in the past 50 years oh it's tough it's i i really have to I have to say five there are five things okay. type 1a supernova models and the chance to take our limit that's a big deal. Okay. Exoplanetary debris around white dwarfs, totally unexpected. White dwarf reincarnation, very exciting. That a white dwarf can be a dying star, but it can re- reincarnate itself 
by having a late thermal pulse as the white dwarf. That's a big deal. The age of the galactic disk, knowing how old the disk of our galaxy is, and that it's younger than the galactic halo of the Milky Way, ten billion, less than 10 billion years, between 8 and 10 billion years. And then the upper mass limit of the formation of white dwarfs by finding white dwarfs in young open clusters, we know that all stars up to 8 to 9 solar masses become white dwarfs. Those are the five things. Okay, so the bottom line, though, is that we are on a one-way street. What yes. we know for cert with certainty is that eventually our sun is going to run out of hydrogen and is going to start fusing heavier elements and it will eventually collapse onto itself. The, the outer layers will be stripped of 40% of, of the That's current right. mass and this uh, baby will expand out and likely overtake the inner solar system and the inner core will collapse into a white dwarf, as you've described. Uh, on a philosophical level, as an yes. astrophysicist who studies such extreme objects in the local universe, do you ever wonder about the paradox between the machinations of a solar-type star's endgame, as I just described, and the yes. fragility of complex life here on Earth? Definitely. It, 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 I think about it a lot. And uh, it's certainly uh, something that is is just endlessly fascinating and uh, uh, yet bizarre. When that, when that does take place, uh, any advanced life that is left would have to colonize another, another world, I mean, to, uh, uh, to survive because it would not be, probably not be habitable. There is a lot of fine-tuning as you say, uh, to allow advanced life on our planet. And this reminds me of the book by uh, Don Brownlee and Peter Ward uh, at the University of Washington in Seattle, who wrote a book, Rare Earth, Why Advanced Life May Be Rare in the Universe. And, you know, they, a lot, some of the things you've already mentioned, they, they mentioned in the book uh, that, uh, that fine-tune all the conditions in our solar system for the uh, allowance of, of, of uh, advanced life. You know, it is it is fragile in the sense uh, we don't have to worry about it in our lifetimes, but I mean, certainly uh, in the future, it can be catastrophic for the, for this uh, for this planet for although, all the planets. Although we're talking literally four to five billion years from now, and, and let's hope that that's uh, right that we will, if our progeny and distant progeny survive, they will be cruising the uh, the galaxy uh, by yes, then, and somehow. <laughs> Somehow, if, if to survive, they would have to do that. That's right. Okay. Uh, and maybe by then, uh, there will be the technology to, uh, to do that. But, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, all bets are off with this universe. Uh, one of our brightest students at the university uh, we've ever turned out, uh, Sean Carroll at Caltech, uh, named his, his website, Our Preposterous Universe. It is preposterous in many ways. Uh, and... Uh, that's we just you know anything anything is possible nothing can be really ruled out uh because most phenomena we try to try to understand and model are model dependent and models change uh our theoretical background changes and and becomes becomes more advanced more sophisticated so a lot of these questions can then be answered more more uh, definitively and precisely so finally, what goes through your own head when you look up at a clear night sky? Oh my goodness, that's uh, uh, 
just like I say, endless, endless fascination about what's out there, about the vastness of the cosmic distance scale and the seemingly infinite content of our universe. And what, what is even more amazing is humanity uh, has the potential to fully understand its inner workings if given enough time. It's going to take time, but we're getting there. And it's, it's very possible that we'll understand at some point in the future the inner workings of the universe. Uh, I'm optimistic about that, about future generations uh, being able to do that. But looking up at the night sky, uh, I have the same feeling of fascination and wonder that I did as a child looking up at the stars and, uh, and planets in the sky. It hasn't changed. Ed, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Yes, I, I'm not on social media, but I, I will uh, gladly provide my email address. It's, it's Edward dot sion s-i-o-n at villanova v-i-l-l-a-n-o-v-a dot e-d-u edward dot sion at villanova dot e-d-u i'd be happy to hear from anyone as always please follow cosmic controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my twitter feed edward sion thanks for giving us a better understanding of our star's own endgame it was my pleasure thanks for having me Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at BDormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>